0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be
0: meaningless.
2: So crazy about. It's just music.
0: Welcome to Sound Opinion from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun Times.
1: And I'm Greg Kotz. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only
0: rock and roll talk show, we're going to welcome musician, poet, and performance artist Lori Anderson. And then Greg and I will review and rate the new albums from hip-hop group The Roots and Trip Hopper's Portishead. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. That was
3: me playing conkers at the bus stop on a blanket in the bluebells. But That was me. The same meter stands in now when I think all this stuff can make a life. It's pretty hard to take it in.
0: That was me. Greg, that of course is Sir Paul McCartney with a song from Memory Almost Full, the one and it turns out only album he will release for Hear Music, the label that was started by the Starbucks Coffee Chain. There was a lot of talk that with Starbucks starting its own record label, Hear Music, this was perhaps a way that the record industry can continue with its old model, uh, but in a new setting. You know, what if all sorts of restaurants and, and retail outlets started labels, you know, clothing stores. And, and of course, you know, coffee shops are natural because you go in and you're hearing the music. In fact, Starbucks had, had a corporate programming thing for all the music systems and all of its outlets. So it would only play uh, Paul <laughs> McCartney's album the week it was released. They also had big releases by Joni Mitchell and James Taylor and some newer artists like Sia. Now, as the chain is starting to have some serious trouble on the business side of things, it got too big, too fast in this era of corporate. Corporate global expansion. The first thing that went was the record company. All the artists that it signed are now just going to be on Concord Music, which was the back end. You know, they were producing the actual CDs, but Starbucks was, uh, they were signing them and they were paying them a lot of money and obviously giving them a very high profile. I don't know. How is Sir Paul going to feel? You know, all those years on Capitol Records, now he's on Concord Music, which is not a very impressive label otherwise. Well, I think he got what he wanted out of Starbucks, which was uh, a huge
1: coffee buzz. off that record Uh, more people were talking about a McCartney record last summer than had in any time in the last 10 15 years easily because of this new method he chose to release it which was through a boutique label after being literally
0: a building block a foundational element of the major label system which is now crumbling there had to be floors of that Capitol Tower that were named after him and the Beatles absolutely but the the point
1: here Jim I think is that Starbucks got into the physical CD sales business and like just about everybody else's finding out, there ain't no money in physical CDs anymore. I mean, right. th- that market is declining. They sold 4 million CDs last year at Starbucks stores, up 20% from the previous years. But what they found was they were selling less music per store than they had in previous years. Right. They were expanding. They're a coffee business. They decided, right. wait a minute. We Stick can, we, with what you know. We yeah. can't be selling this product that is, is essentially going out of fashion. Guess what they're doing? They're getting in bed with iTunes. They said, okay, yeah. now we're going to give our customers iTunes cards yeah. and that's the way
0: that they, they're going to sell music. Or dock your iPod while you fill up your grande espresso latte. I mean, I'm a little disappointed that the retail outlet thing isn't working because I wanted to be able to buy music at Chiffy Lube. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's Coldplay, the UK band that has sold 30 million records in the 21st century, only three studio records, 30 million sales. They're about to release their fourth album called Viva La Vida or Death and All His Friends. Did oh. you get that? That's a name. <laughs> <laughs> And the way they're ushering it in, Jim, is that they're in a giving mood. Despite the fact that this band has had all these record sales, they believe that they must change in ways that uh, the record industry is not. They're giving away the first single from the record. It's called Violet Hill. It was made available on their website earlier this week. Uh, within a day, 600,000 people had signed on to the Coldplay website and downloaded that song. Wow. Uh, a lot of buzz about this record because it's being produced by Brian Eno, who has uh, famously worked with people like Talking Heads and U2 during their massive stadium rock uh, years mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the 80s, now working with Coldplay. And so there's a lot of interest in this song already, but I think the way that the band is choosing to market this new record is interesting. Not only the new single coming out as a free download, they're also making it available as a vinyl 7-inch to subscribers of the NME, the British Newsweekly. Weekly.
0: The absolute perfect illustration yeah. of what we were talking about a few weeks ago, where you have the download on one end and for hi-fi aficionados, the vinyl on the other.
1: Exactly. And they're also playing three free shows in London, at Madison Square Garden in New York City, and in Barcelona, Spain, where they recorded the bulk of this record. So the band is going that free music route. Even though they've been very successful selling music, they now believe that they need to market their music in this way in order to keep up with trends. We've seen this happen with major bands like Nine Inch Nails and Radiohead in recent months where they are giving away music to promote their latest albums and now Coldplay is doing it as well
0: Greg you've actually managed to download this unusual for you you Luddite I have (laughs) not heard the single I'm eager to let's play it on Sound Opinions
3: A long
1: and dark December From the rooftop side That was Violet Hill from Coldplay's new album on Sound Opinions.
2: Oh, Superman. Oh,
0: oh, Mom and Dad. There is a wonderful song from 1981, Oh Superman was the uh, first track that Laurie Anderson recorded an accidental single, an even more surprising number two chart-topping hit in the U.K. Put her on the map in the U.S. as well. Multi-hyphenated, Greg. <laughs> Performance artist, yeah. uh, recording artist, visual artist, great philosopher, great storyteller, above all. It was a real treat to have Lori Anderson in here to Sound Opinions to talk with us about her music, about her thoughts, about her own life. She was in town performing her new piece, Homeland, at the Museum of Contemporary Art, and she came by Opinions. Sound Opinions.
1: You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My co-host is Jim DeRogatis, and we are here with Laurie Anderson. Laurie, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks a lot. Jim, do you realize that we are here with the first uh, NASA artist in residence in uh, Sound Opinions history? I forgot about that piece of trivia. Yeah. We have to get more to exciting. tell that story.
2: You have to um, um, realize I'm also the last.
1: <laughs> let's start there Where, how do you become a NASA artist in residence you have to fill out an application I mean is it something that you need to go through a whole bunch of tests for or how, do, how does that happen
2: for me I was sitting in the studios just out of the blue comes a call we're from NASA would you like to be the first artist in residence and you know, of course I didn't believe this guy <laughs> I said you're not from NASA come on what fan figured out my secret dream you know but it turns out three calls later he was from NASA and I said well what are- what does that mean Like, a, in a space program? And he said that he didn't know what it meant and what did I think it meant. <laughs> I thought, who, who are these people? You know. So I thought, great, I'm going to invent a job. So I just went around to all these places, you know, mission control in Houston, a couple of years, Hubble Space Telescope in Maryland and Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. And, and it just was a fly on the wall. And I think when they asked me, to do this, uh, they had in mind some kind of like sexy techno project, like bounce light off one satellite onto another satellite onto the dark side of the moon kind of thing. Mm. So when I told them at the end of this time that I was going to do a long poem, their faces really <laughs> fell. They was like, a long poem? Why would you do that? You know, so I wrote this thing called The End of the Moon, and that was a show that I did a couple years ago. But the thing I hadn't realized Was that stars aren't there in a random way There's a secret order in the sky And the colors of the stars tell you their age Their origin How they began And I had never realized this before I had never realized That I was living In an enormous
0: Why, and you say that you're the last because they weren't so happy with the poem? <laughs> is that?
2: The idea? Well, no, I don't think this guy ever read the poem, but he was a conservative senator. I'm mm. not going to name him. He's going through the NASA budget looking at it kind of – you know, he was a very proud whistleblower. He goes, you know, $20,000 for an artist in residence. This Uh-oh. is an outrage.
1: <laughs> Well, it's interesting what you said, too, about them uh, trying to define artists in residence. Well, what what do you think it means? And uh, it's always interesting to read about Laurie Anderson because the way that people struggle trying to define who you are and what you do, and it's been like for 40 years. What exactly does Laurie Anderson do? She's this, the best attempts are usually multimedia artist, mixed media artist. You work in music, film, uh, mime, I mean theater, uh Mime, bring, no. Uh, that, wait I've a seen second. that.
2: Wait, you slipped mime in here. Mime. Yeah, Marcelle, yeah, you second. are not Marcel,
1: Marcel. But I've actually no. seen that written. Oh my God! I've <laughs> actually seen that written by about your work.
2: Mime gives me the creeps.
1: Yeah, it's it's amazing. So these definitions come up all the time. Forty years ago, when you first came to New York, did you have a definition of what you wanted to do when you started? Uh, no,
2: and nobody else did either. We were just making stuff, and this also was a time. There were no stakes. You weren't in the art world to, you know, make your name. It was like um, not a way to be famous or make money. It was not that kind of scene. New York was broke. It was dark. It was dangerous. It was not the fantasy land it is now. It was um, a really different scene, and we were self-consciously making this kind of new music that we thought, you know, that we knew had never been in the world before. I was lying in bed one morning trying to think of a really good reason to get up, and the phone rang, and it was Jerry, and she said, Hey, hi. How are you? What's going on? How's your work going? Oh, fine. You know, just waking up, but it's fine. It's going okay. How's yours? Oh, a lot of work, you know. I'm trying to make some money, too. Listen, I've got to get back to it. Uh, just thought I'd call to see how you are. I say, yeah, you know, we really should get together next week, you know, have lunch and talk, and then she says, yeah, I'll be in touch. Okay. Okay. And we didn't have these categories. We didn't put them in bends of any kind, you know, so... There was, in this group that I was in, sculptors, painters, dancers, musicians, all kinds of people. And we all switched around doing stuff. So, I mean, I remember one year in particular when everyone in this group was making an opera. And mm. You could really literally <laughs> walk down the street in Soho and go, how's your opera?
1: Mine's fine. You know, how's yours going? You know? When you started recording, how did that come about, that you actually started putting out records and stuff? I know it was sort of almost a fluke, right, with those Superman being released as sort of a DIY kind of single, and then becoming a number two hit in the UK.
2: That record I made, five hundred dollar grant from the NEA, put it out myself, mail order. And mail order meant at that point taking a phone call, getting an order for one copy, boxing yeah. it up, and taking <laughs> it to the post office. That was mail order. Then yeah. this is like yeah. 1980, so I was selling these records, and then I got a phone call one day from from London. And they said we'd like to order some records. I said, cool. How much? How many? And he, didn't, he said, I, we need 40,000 today uh, <laughs> Thursday and 40,000 more on Monday I was like, <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> Hung up the phone and went e- uh. And what I did was I called up Warner Brothers Because they'd been coming to some of my shows And they said, you should really be making a record No, this is not I didn't really want to make a record I was in the art world Pop culture to us was idiotic It was like something we were not interested in at all And so you know, when you don't want something that you get, it's a different thing. Mm-hmm. It's a different situation. So I said, listen, can you press some records for me? I said, uh, that's not the way we do things here at Warner Brothers Records. <laughs> you know, we don't just press some records for yeah. you. You sign an eight-record deal. I said, eight records? Eight? I, You know, I can't think of, like, eight records. But I signed it because uh, I don't know why. Because I... Did it out of curiosity, I think. And I got a lot of flack from my fellow artists for doing that.
0: A lot of flack. You had come, Laurie, from the music world. I mean, you played in the Chicago Youth Symphony when you were growing up here, right?
2: Well, that's not the same music world as the pop charts in in the U.K.
0: But it wasn't (laughs) like you had none of this in your background.
2: Um, Well, you know, it was. that's an utterly different world. It Mm. really is, you know. And for me, that was the, the... My childhood was about romantic 19th century music, Mm. you know. And just, I I loved that. I went to Interlochen National Music Camp, you know.
0: Hey, we're on in Interlochen in in Michigan. (laughs) Oh, hi (laughs) there. Hi
2: there. Don't practice too hard. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because it's like out there by the lake, you can get kind of weird, (laughs) you know, just playing all day, which is why I quit when I was 16. I I got... um, I thought, you know, if I just keep practicing like this, I'm just going to never do anything else. You know, I'm just, I'll never learn German. I'll never learn physics. So I quit, just cold turkey. Okay, here I am. I'm 60. I don't know German. I don't know physics.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you were a NASA artist in residence. You see,
2: you know, what what a great payoff, Yeah.
1: Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we're going to continue our discussion with Laurie Anderson, and then we're going to review new releases from The Roots and Portishead.
0: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That's some more Laurie Anderson, a song called Sharky's Day, from uh, her 1984 album, Mr. Heartbreak, produced by Peter Gabriel. Great stuff. Uh, when we left off with our discussion with Laurie, she was telling us how O Superman's success led to a subsequent deal with Warner Brothers Records and an accidental career as a rock musician.
2: Sharky
1: it's interesting though you're um you' basically saying you became a recording artist by accident and now you're I think uh, about to put out your tenth album eleventh album in the next year that's a pretty long career for somebody who did it by accident I mean obviously there was something there that you found you could work with
2: yeah I mean I don't really think of it that way of uh, and I'm not somebody who puts very many records out you know yeah I, I, five six years can go by and i've uh, oops, I didn't put a record out <laughs> but no I really. I love doing different projects. And it, it's great too when you're when you run out of ideas, you know, in one form. You can think, Okay, I'll I'll start doing another. How about some making some potato prints? <laughs> mm. That'd be fun for a while. You know, I, I, it sounds a little shallow, but I'm really here to have a good time. Do you think mm. we've
0: gotten away from that, uh, Lori, with the internet and and such uh, narrow genres? You know, I mean, there are websites devoted to D-beat, which is a, a derivative of of doom or thrash metal, and you know, everybody's in their tiny world. I first interviewed you when I was writing my biography of Lester Bangs, and and uh, he was a friend Lester of yours, a, Bangs somebody who knew I you, love him. an eloquent philosopher. That notion that that we should all do whatever we want, just get out there and create, yeah. make yourself. Yeah. And and it seems like that's kind of gotten away.
2: Well, don't get me started on freedom in this country.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we like that subject. You know. <laughs> You know, but
2: experts, I mean, I have have a song in the show Homeland about expertise. So who are these experts? Experts are usually self-appointed people or elected officials or people skilled in sales techniques, trained or self-taught to focus on things that might be identified as problems. But the expert is someone who studies the problem and tries to get to the root of the problem. The expert is someone who carries malpractice insurance. Because often the solution becomes the problem. One of the things that is incredibly annoying to me is the dependence on on small categories and experts. I mean, but that's just the way our culture is going, you know, you have to to hone down your little territory and then defend it with a shotgun, you know. <laughs> there I am. I'm doing that. And so that's encouraged in many on many levels in our culture. So I think um being a, a dedicated like I don't know. I I even call it amateur because it's silly to say that. You know, I'm a dedicated whatever poly artist or something, you Mm -hmm. know, multi. I mean, I I really think that um, it's a great way to be an artist, you know, Mm -hmm. is just do a lot of different kinds of things. So I, I, I highly recommend it to young artists who are starting out. You know, you don't try not to define what you do.
1: So you have this blank canvas uh, when you start these huge, which end up being huge projects, um, these, these multimedia performances. If nobody's seen a Laurie Anderson performance, they should go see one. In fact, you're on the road now with this project Homeland. How does something like Homeland start? I mean, you're basically saying you could do anything you want in any medium you want. How does something like that start and end up being this, this huge thing?
2: It's a, first of all, it's not a multimedia thing. It's, it This started out Being a pure music thing, because I fell in love with some some singers, and they were like these Tuvan throat singers. Mm. I went to see them at the Himalayan uh, Museum in New York, the Rubin Museum, and these guys were singing. You know, and it is it's incredible to listen to them because they have being right next to their heads is like being next to a radio tuned to twelve stations.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they can make numerous sounds at once. Exactly, with their mouth. It's so
2: eerie. Plus, they play these gorgeous two-stringed instruments, Chinese instruments, erhu, that are very throaty violins. so they're they're like... Ah, 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 you know, there was a very kind of hoarse-sounding string playing. I started uh, you know, I asked him to come into the studio and play with some New York musicians, and it, that was an incredible couple of days. So I played with a lot of people, really wide range from these Mongolian guys to, like, Mark Rebo and John Zorn and New York musicians and some pop people and improvising, actually, which I'd never really done before. So with a really wide range of people, I thought, you know, I think I'll try making a record this way, writing it on the road, mm-hmm. seeing what happens, trying out with audiences and improvising, not really knowing what I'm doing. You can hear those sounds in this piece, even though they're not there. You can hear the... Ah, ah, kind of thing. Concentration... <laughs> 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 Empty your mind. Let the rest of the world go by. So that's the way this was built, and really different from any other. Thing I've made, so I'm not. I didn't do something in the studio and then try to replicate it on the road.
0: So, so you were keeping the emphasis on the music in Homeland because there isn't the the visual presentation that has accompanied many of your other uh, performances. Right.
2: Yeah. And I'm finding that I'm more and more distracted by that. And mm. whenever I go to music shows and you have the obligatory video, you're just like, turn that off. It's like not. <laughs> it's distracting. You know. Often. I, I very rarely am in a situation where it's adding. I feel like it's adding something. I usually have to close my eyes, so I, I'm not doing that with this one because there's so much stuff going on. The uh, stories are complicated, and there's no image that works with these because the way that the stories are told is this very jump cut kind of way.
1: Well, I think you you brought it up. I, you know, text is so important for what you do. Um, the words are so meaningful. Storyteller. I mean, I, when I think of you and, you know, okay, summarize her in one word. I, that's probably the first thing that I would say. What's the story behind Homeland?
2: Well, you know, I uh, have really been uh, trying to come to terms with what's going on here, you know, lately. Mm. And, uh, really, st- you know, pretty much starting from nine eleven, which I w- was here in Chicago. I think it was, um, when I was making a film in Japan, uh, maybe in 2003 I was working there. And, um, this was a film of a kind of visual fables with little short stories. I was working with the translator, translating these little stories. And um, one of the stories was about losing things and, like, just this feeling of losing things. You know, like, you have this feeling, like, but you don't know what it is you lost. You have this thing, I lost something. You can't put your finger on what it was, your car keys, your briefcase, your wife. And, you know, it's just, like, this feeling of, like, whoa, I lost it. Um, so, anyway, the translator saying, "No, what did you lose?" And I said, "No, it's it's the feeling. It's not the thing. It's the feeling of losing something." And then she said, uh, "Well, when did you lose it?" And I thought, "I'm being psychoanalyzed by the translator. <laughs> thank you very much." And so I thought, "I'm going to make an effort to think when did I lose it." And I realized that I wrote this w- at, at the moment that we were in, in, invading Iraq, and you know what I lost was my country. Mm. And I had put this little story in the film next to an image of Mount Fuji. There is no more iconic image for place, for where you come from, how you feel about where you come from, than that. Mm. So that and many other experiences in terms of like moving around this country and looking at what's going on made me want to write something because I don't feel that even in the middle of of the elections... It it feels like nobody's actually discussing what's going on. You know, I mean, I know the candidates are talking about important things like you know, healthcare and global warming and the war to some extent, but nobody is really saying, you know, we have our military budget is bigger than the rest of the world's combined. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is monstrous. What are we doing? What what is this about? I mean, there's a reason we can't do all of these other things. Mm-hmm.
0: You know? Well, even the very title of your piece, I mean, homeland is such a, a loaded word. I mean, it always reminds me as a student of history of it, it, it's dangerously close to fatherland. And, and it's just fraught with these connotations. I, everybody has a home.
2: And we never call – Americans don't use fatherland or homeland or motherland. You know, we just don't. Yeah. That's not in our culture. So it's an imposed word that's already fuzzy and sentimental in a way that's kind of creepy mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> paired with security.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it, it goes back. I mean, we talked about Oh, Superman, and, and and you think about those electronic arms of the mother, you know, embracing the child, you know, or whatever <laughs> she's embracing. It's it's taking this very comforting image and giving it this very malevolent kind of vibe. It, it seems like there's always that ambiguity that it's at the heart of a lot of your work. You're not telling people what to think, but you certainly are making them think about stuff, and that seems to be the point.
2: People know this. They don't need me to beat beat them on the head with facts, you know. But I I can't help putting this stuff into my music and stories because it, to me it's the most intensely interesting thing going on mm. and because it is an, a time where stories are being told and analyzed. So that's what I'm trying to to uh, Those kinds of stories about authority, power, and also really, you know, consumerism in, in a certain way. You know, it makes it sound really, like, pretty dry to say <laughs> Mother, my topics. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs> you it's, it's music, you know. It's yeah. music. It's like p- people playing music and singing songs. And I'd say it's one-third politics, one-third, like, s- sort of strange dreams, and one-third just pure music.
1: You know, you have a, an amazing vantage point on this whole thing because, you know, on 9-11, you were here in Chicago that morning. Uh, you were scheduled to play a show that night. And that morning, your city was attacked. Um, Lou Reed, the person you've been living with for the last 15 years, 20 years, is blocks away from that event while you were half a continent away. It must have been a traumatic experience for you, and yet you went through with this amazing show that night while everybody else was shutting down. Major League Baseball wasn't playing any games. They were shutting down art galleries. Nobody was going out of their houses. Lori, how did you sort of process that day and, and decide to go ahead with a performance that night which by the way was an extraordinary event for the people who were there
2: for me too it really was amazing to be singing about the present that was because usually you don't you're never in that situation yeah. mm-hmm. never you like whoa and we really didn't we, we didn't know what was going to happen next the promoter called me and he said look around noon and he said a lot of people have been calling and saying they're coming to the show do you want to do it? And I said, you know, I really like being with people. I trust people. I like being in a group of people. I like that kind of energy. And this is one of the reasons that I bother to go out on tour. I don't just concoct these things in my studio and ship them out and sell them. I actually like the energy of seeing real people and seeing what will happen. And and all of the kind of accidental things that can happen as well in a live show and, and improvised things and things that are just not on the schedule so yeah that evening was uh, very very intense it's one of the one of my best memories as a musician of being with people and making that kind of music and feeling the, the contact with them that's that's what i'm in this for i'm not in this to kind of go look at me i'm in this to have a kind of give and take situation and that that really only happens in a in a live show,
1: mm-hmm. did you feel like uh, you know the music was going to be up to the occasion? I mean, obviously there was all this stuff swirling around uh, in the air. What, what are we feeling? You know, this this incredible sense of disconnection and anxiety about what's going to happen next. And it's almost like, what do you say in that sort of a situation? Did you did you feel like there was a role that your music needed to play that night, or was there you know you couldn't go that you couldn't go there because that's just too daunting. I mean, I'm just curious about how you felt your music what it needed to do that night for for those people that showed up.
2: It's a kind of heightened version of what I always hope it will happen, which is to uh, you know that it that it touches people. I mean, I'm I'm into heartbreaking. I really that's what I'm, mm-hmm. I want to do. I want to break my own and other people's, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like just open up to music because music can take you places that other things really just never can because it's, it's so uh, physical and especially physical when you're in a place feeling those sound waves pounding on you and it's not just kind of coming through your your computer speaker or your, your you know really small, tiny headphones competing with the street but music that like floods over you so um,
1: you know I wanted to just to sort of finish up the story about that evening, the last song was a song that obviously was not written for that occasion. Uh, it had been around, Love Among the Sailors. Do you remember that? And those last few lines, <laughs> oh, my God, it was devastating. Do, would you mind reading it? Or at least
2: no, just I don't sort of mind talking it. about it? I mean, I have it in front of me oh, here good. in case you want it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, yeah, this is from uh, a song called Love Among the Sailors. Yeah. There is a hot wind blowing Plague drifts across the oceans And if this is the work of an angry god I want to look into his angry face There is no pure land now No safe place Come with us into the mountains Hombres Sailors Comrades
1: End of the show (laughs) Got a dry eye in the house
2: (laughs) Comrades, boy
1: It was pretty heavy stuff And to be able to pull a song like that out At that moment, you know That was, uh, I think everybody needed that (laughs) Uh, I'd
2: forgotten that song was in the show
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's the way the night ended I'll never forget it Uh, And no one else who was there Will forget it either, I'm sure so, Isn't music
2: great? You yeah. Know, you just can do so many things you just wouldn't do otherwise.
1: You know? It's amazing how this stuff holds up, right? I mean, that was written how many years before yeah, that? right. You know? So it's, it's, it's,
0: it's amazing stuff. Lori, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thank you for coming it by Sound Opinions. has
2: been really fun. And you're alone on an island now Tuning in Did you think this was the way your world
0: would
2: end
1: Comrades To listen to archive shows, read footnotes, and learn about there Sound Opinions no events, visit soundopinions.org. We're going to be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with reviews of new records by The Roots and Portishead.
2: And we stand here, on the pier, watching you drown. Love, among the sea. if this is the work of an angry god I want to look into his angry face there is no
0: Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a track by The Roots from their eighth studio album just out, Rising Down. The song is called Get Busy. Like a lot of tracks on this album, it has some guest stars, including that uh, Philadelphia rapper P.D. P.D. What a great name. I love that. P.D. <laughs> P.D. I'm going to call you Cotty Cotty from now on. Who are the roots? Uh, Greg, it really depends. Uh, they're different things to different listeners. I think a lot of people have come to know them in the jam band nation as that group that comes out at Bonnaroo and Festivals of that ilk and plays for three hours. <laughs> the one with the drummer with the huge afro, right? That drummer is also an incredibly versatile producer, Amir Questlove Thompson, who has worked with artists as diverse as D'Angelo and Erica Badu on one side and John Mayer and Hank Williams Jr. on the other. In fact, he also proved that he could master shopping mall pop anthems with a new song called Birthday Girl that's voiced by Fallout Boy's Patrick Stump. That's out there now. It's not a part of this album. And then finally, you have the band, which has given us, I think, some of the most musically inventive and lyrically challenging hip-hop albums of the last 15 years. I think their highest point was uh, 1999, Things Fall Apart, but every album has a core of political Thought and commentary and social activism in it. This new one, Rising Down, takes its uh, name from a seven-volume treatise on violence in the community. It has a very controversial cover, which is, in fact, a Southern propaganda poster called Negro Rule from the 1890s. And like all Roots albums, this band, which is centered around the drummer, Questlove, and the main vocalist and lyricist, Tariq Black, Thought, trotter also has a lot of guests on this album uh, we have uh, talib kwali and most deaf and common and a lot of uh younger up and coming names let's hear a track from rising down and then we can get into our opinions about what the roots have given us this time this is called i can't help it it's uh at the midpoint in the album and it's got as guest stars malik b and porn on sound opinions
3: How I survive with it, talk, jive with it, to take a dive with it, connive with it, depart and arrive with it. Harsh thrive, that's why it's part I with it. I did it, make rounds in five minutes. Mine of a dentist, crimes of a menace. Press rewind, see what you find in my image. Take music and back to the line of a scrimmage. Freak, you know we call the freak with the flow. Talks cheap, that's why we speak with the dough Ill techniques, you i not sleep with the flow It's cold outside, and she can leaf with the snow I tweak in the low tone, freak with the ozone I can't help hiding my secrets they're so known I only do what I got to, cause it's possible And climbing over whatever's known as the obstacle
1: I Can't Help It from the Roots 8th studio album, Rising Down. Jim, a group out of Philly started out with this association towards the more jazzy neo-soul side of the uh, hip-hop spectrum. I think they were viewed as backpacking hippies (laughs) who happened to be a hip-hop group back in the early days not hardcore enough for the streets, you know? They weren't gangsta enough for, for a lot of people. So it's interesting to see that the, the turn their music has taken the last couple of records, especially with Game Theory, their record in 2006, and now uh, the latest record, Rising Down. This is some of the hardest hip-hop out there right now, and some of the the most depressing in some ways, some of the darkest. They've stripped away those jazzy keyboards that used to flavor their records, and now you notice all the keyboard tones are those really deep, burbling synthesizer tones. Yes, Um, it's a very
0: edgy, unsettling album. it
1: is. Just listening to it, you don't have to hear a thing of what they're saying. Just the sound of this thing will creep you out. It basically comes down to those really deep bass synthesizer tones and just amazing drumming of, of Questlove Thompson, I think. Again, one of the underrated drummers. I mean, people talk about the the outsized personality on stage you know here's this guy with this huge afro yeah. dwarfing this little trap kit that he's playing you know with the pick stuck in the, yeah, yeah, in his yeah. hair but you know he's a really smart drummer he gives the songs exactly what they need the grooves here are, are really terrific there's one track in particular which is basically it's called 75 bars which is just mm-hmm. Questlove laying down and Black Thought the primary MC in the group just spitting fire over the top yeah, of it is yeah. the best way I can say it. there's no choruses there are no niceties in that in that song no melody but it is a Amazing. I am such a
3: fair nigga. You in a battle telling me you're not ready like you figured out. I don't care, nigga You now listen to the sounds Of the money-making Jam trillionaires, nigga Gentlemen of an extraordinary league You never see me Throwing on no ordinary weed What I'm smoking Ain't a product Of no ordinary seed Your boy is heavy treat. I'm feeling merry As a of Perry scene man.
0: That song to me Points out the problem With this album The roots The last couple of records Like I said Since 1999 Their masterpiece Things yeah. roll apart They've been wildly inconsistent Some of the guests here are, are brilliant They work wonderfully Common has been part Of their Okay, playa, circle of, of Friends for a long time And yep. he contributes As does uh, Most deaf. Those guys are great But a lot of these other rappers, they, they lose the plot, and there are some really bad lines. The, the thrust of this album is about nihilism in the black community. The mm-hmm. stuff that, that leads a teenage kid to think that guns and drugs are the only way out, but then you have a line like, between the greenhouse gases, Mother Nature's spinning off her axis. And it's like, oh man, who's that? Which one of the guests was responsible for that? And don't let him come back to the party. <laughs> I, I wish that it had just been The Roots, and maybe a, a few guests, like Mostaf or Talib Kweli. And, and you know who are all these other people and why are you diluting the strength of this music
1: well a lot of them are ancillary members like malik b used to be in in the roots and some of these other people that you that you reference like dice raw and porn people yeah, like porn, that they're, I mean, they're sort on. of friends of the band it, you know it's not like high profile guest stars i mean yes common's
0: on the record but but Commons been working with these guys forever well he was one of the good guests yeah. i think a lot of the other guys aren't and i don't think that they edit their lyrics and say there are some lines here that don't live up to what the message is in the others
1: I I would agree that the record is, uh, and I had the same problem with Game Theory. Uh, I I thought it was the same kind of like one-trick pony kind of record where you know, okay, the world's a dark place, but they lost some of that sense of play and melody that I was hearing. Things Fall Apart, to me, is still the high point of this this band. 1999 release, one of the great hip-hop records of the 90s, and I don't think they've quite equaled that here again. So uh, it's a mixed record for me. There's some great stuff on here. I agree with you. It's a little diluted with some of the guest vocalists on the record, and uh, I would give it a burn-it rating on our patented
0: buy-it-burn-it-trash-it scale. Absolutely. Go out and buy Phrenology and the record before that, Things Fall Apart. This you have to just burn.
1: Mortis said, back with a new album. That's a song called Silence from their third album called Third. A few weeks ago at the Coachella Music Festival, this was the band that everybody was talking about. What were they going to sound like? What were they going to look like? Uh, They'd been away for a decade. One of those bands that had captured a lot of music fans in the mid-90s with a debut album called Dummy, which uh, for many people personified the British trip-hop movement what was trip-hop it was a basically a british response to american hip-hop based out of bristol england and there was three key bands slash artists involved in that movement and they included portishead as well as massive attack and tricky and they all made defining albums of sample based music that redefined the sound of hip-hop in a british sensibility the key to the portishead sound was a vocalist named beth gibbons dreamy vocals over these sampled beats And became the coffee table band of choice in the mid-90s for a lot of people. If you had a wine and cheese party, if you had a dinner party and you didn't want to chase the guests away but you wanted to play something cool, well, Dummy was the choice for a lot of people. They moved away from that sound very quickly, though. They got sick of that tag, trip-hop. They wanted to do something new. They put out a self-titled record in 1997, which ventured into darker terrain and then went away for 10 years reformed a couple of years ago, uh, started making new music, and it's a radical shift from what they initially sounded like. Here's a taste of it. It's called We Carry On from the third Portishead record on Sound Opinions.
0: Portishead Head with a song called We Carry On from the new record, Third. Greg, I don't know if you're right about this radical reinvention. I mean, Portis Head, at its core, is still making party music for melancholics. <laughs> I, I think that that's a good thing. I think they do it very, very well. There was an idiotic piece of criticism in Salon recently where they were saying Trip Hop died on April 29, 2008 in Portishead, North Somerset, England <laughs> where they were saying that, that Portishead was responsible for killing this genre. But you know, I, I've interviewed all the major players in Tricky and Massive Attack and in Portishead Jeff Barrow and they were always fascinated by the way early hip hop or just after the, the earliest days uh, when you had things like Pulse. Boutique by the Beastie Boys and De La Soul, the the way they were able to make great pop music out of out of weird elements, almost music concrete. The sound of a cement mixer becomes a hook. Right, that's what all these guys wanted to do, and I still hear Jeff Barrow doing it. In place of the old spaghetti Western soundtrack samples, we've got a lot of uh, warm analog synthesizer baths, and and we also have some very beyond minimalist folk jazz interludes in between these big industrial rhythms and those uh, you know very German but still somehow human sounding synthesizer sounds. I think that's at the core. It's still very human, very introspective, very moody music. The biggest change for me is that Beth Gibbons is now less languid and inward-looking and more concerned about the state of the universe. It's not just her soul that's in trouble now. It's you know this war-torn, environmentally destroyed globe that we've got.
1: You know, I think Dummy is one of those records you could put on, and if you didn't know what they were singing about, it it would still sound very... Tranquil, almost lulling. I, I don't think you could say that about this record, and that's why I meant I think this is a, this is a radical shift for them. This is, this is jarring in parts, and I think intentionally so. They disrupt these placid sort of uh, soundscapes that they were so, so keen on making in the mid-'90s with these jarring disruptions of noise, and I think it's pretty profound. They wanted to make this kind of music. I interviewed Barrow back in the mid-'90s. They just didn't seem capable of making it, but now mm. the shift has gone much more towards live instrumentation. They've gone away from sample-based music. To now where it's pretty much of a live band They fleshed out the, the live touring lineup It's now six, seven, eight pieces at times Much more based on this aggression of guitar and live drumming These are the kind of elements that weren't present on the, on that first record
0: Yeah, but it, I still think it's going to get played in the coffee houses And that's going to be all the more subversive for it
1: Well, it is, it is a way more subversive record And I think people who love Dummy are going to have a hard time processing this record They're going to say, mm-hmm. what is this, you know? Frankly, I love this kind of stuff. I I love the fact that they are uh, subverting the formula, and they have not made the same record. They took their time making this, and they came back with a record that uh, indicates to me that they've spent some serious time saying, "Okay, what don't we want to sound like?" And basically, it's the old Porta Set, and I think they've taken that a couple of steps further. It is a difficult listen for people who want that sort of languid background music. This is not background music at all. It is it is the type to give you nightmares. Uh, (laughs) And there's one red herring on the record. Uh, Let's let's throw that in there. You mentioned these folky. Type of uh, interludes, but I think Deep Water is the one sort of interlude on the record, and I actually hear a smile in Beth Gibbon's voice. Even though she's singing about hard times, she's singing about I can weather this storm. And that is fresh territory for Beth
0: Gibbons because you never got that
1: impression before.
0: Well, we both like it and we could go on and on, but I think it's a buy it from both of us. It definitely is.
1: Double buy it from Jim and I, and next week we uh, are going to be putting on the stethoscopes. We are going to be in rock doctor's mode, helping a needy music patient find some great new music to listen to.
0: Indeed, Dr. Cot. We have some thank yous to say. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, And our chat with Lori Anderson was recorded by Mary Gaffney and Sarah Toulouse. Plus, our fearless leader, our executive producer, the man we like to call Tori Tori, not Petey Petey, is Tori Southside Malatia. The number you have reached has been disconnected. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages.
3: Hey guys. This is- uh, Jedediah Gant from Raleigh, North Carolina. I was just calling to say that I just listened to your uh, One Note Wonder show from last week, and I just wanted to say that I think one of the bands that, uh, one of my favorite bands is actually a One Note Wonder and has done the same thing over and over
1: uh, throughout their career, which is uh, Weezer. My is Jonas. I'm carrying the river. thanks for all your show
3: nights. this is how we feel. Weezer's had multiple albums that uh, every song is very same formula, it changes relative to what Rivers Como wants to do, and they even do all their albums or most of their albums have ten songs or named after colors, same thing over and over, but somehow they make beautiful music that's simple, kind of a um, you know the geek off rock.
0: Thanks guys and enjoyed the show and um, good work. Cheers.
2: I'm Allison Overton from Raleigh, North Carolina, and I nominate T Rex, Mark Bolin and T Rex. And actually, he had two one note careers first with Tyrannosaurus Rex, with Steve Peregrine Took, and then T Rex. And really, it was all the same song. It was wonderful. Maybe there, it was somewhat diminishing returns by Hanks, but his first few records were really wonderful. So thanks for your shows. I love
3: your stuff. Yeah. Hey, this is Tim in Chicago. I'm uh, really digging the show about the one-no-wonders and definitely agree with AC/DC. Thank you for giving these guys the respect they deserve. I also wanted to suggest, in a slightly different vein, the meters. Because the meters never stray all that far from that meter sound. They just have that kind of crazy beat. And that, I mean, the rhythm section. The rhythm section is so tight and yet so, all over the place. I would recommend for anybody not familiar to just get down. I'm going to recommend Africa. Africa.
2: Oh, Africa.
3: Africa. Sing it. If yeah, you were to look up funk in the dictionary, This song, Africa, Africa has all of it in there. Africa, if you opened up the dictionary and you saw funk in the dictionary and you saw Africa, there would be a smell associated with it. There would be a funky smell coming off the page of your dictionary that wouldn't be able to sit still because it is that funky. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Great show, guys. Hi there, this is Justin from Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, and I'm calling to comment on the One Note Wonders. If you ask me, you missed one of the biggest ones of the last decade, and that would be the Foo Fighters. They uh, have released probably, what, five, six, ten, thirty albums? Everyone sounds the same. They all sound decent, but you only really need to pick up maybe one and out of every three.
1: Hi, my name is Ryan. I'm from Berwyn, and the one note choice I have is uh, New Order. All I gotta say is everything's gone green.